Offering my most loving pranam to Bhagwan's lotus feet, dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, The Triune Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai. It's another wonderful, beautiful Thursday, and we are here to resume our study of the Bhagavad Gita. We are in the fourth chapter of the Gita and uh, covered verses nine, ten, and eleven last week. As we go through these verses and especially this chapter, we would find that a lot of explanations really in that sense which connect one shloka to the other are being missed out or rather are unsaid. It's expected that we must understand where it comes from. And I think that is where we have found going back to Swami's Gita Vahini very, very useful. It gives us all of those information or probably the understandings which are missed out in the Bhagavad Gita and uh, this week too we are going to go through some shlokas which kind of feel out of place but when we look a little deeper we understand the meaning of them and why and what they are trying to convey. But as always let's begin with a short summary of what we covered last week because what we are going to do this week is pretty much direct continuation of that. There is no change in concept of what Krishna has been telling. We went through verses 9, 10, 11 as I said. In verse number 9, Krishna says, and this is after having described the nature of an avatar, he says that whoever understands the nature of an avatar's karma and birth, such a person doesn't have a rebirth after discarding the body. That is, one attains freedom from the cycle of birth and death. But the fact is, this cannot be explained or this nature of the avatar and his birth and his actions and why he does certain things cannot be explained in two verses and cannot be understood merely by going through these few verses of the Bhagavad Gita. In fact, the very next shloka Krishna mentions what will be the nature of such a person who has understood the janma and karma of the avatar. He says that it is possible to understand many have attained me in this manner but then he explains what happens to the nature of a such a person. He says they will have no attachment, no fear, no anger. They would be absorbed in God and they would be purified by the tapas of jnana or by the fire of wisdom. I'd explain the importance of this particular verse that when we see God as perfection, it is like interacting with a mirror Every person we come across is like a mirror, but every person we come across is like a flawed mirror. And in a flawed mirror, we always have this tendency to attribute any flaw that we see in this reflection to the mirror, even if the flaw is with us. But when we interact with the Lord, when we come face to face with divinity, maybe as an opportunity to interact with the Anavatar, like blessed opportunity that all of us had, or in the form of prayer itself, I think that is a concept we're going to talk about today. When we make God a part of our lives through our prayers, through our offering to God, that is another way by which we are interacting with God, the perfect mirror. And when we do that, it gives us an opportunity to straighten out the flaws that lie within us. The next shloka, which is shloka number 11, as we saw from the Gita Vaini, is the answer to an unasked question of Arjuna, as I said, the Gita Vaini provides us an opportunity to connect some of these shlokas. So Swami says that Arjuna asks this question, why doesn't 
God be equal to everyone? If liberation is the ultimate, why can't God give that to everyone? Why should he hold it back from a few? Especially why should he hold it back from those who are ignorant? The answer that Krishna gives actually continues into the shlokas that we are going to go through this week too. But in the 11th verse, Krishna says that he has absolutely no partiality. He only answers what people ask for. He gives what people seek. The full import of the statement we will see as we go through the next verse. But these were the verses that we covered last week. We are going to go into the explanation that we have for this week. Probably we will cover three shlokas. The importance of the shlokas that we are going to go through today is what connects the understanding of God, what connects devotion to God, worship of God, to whatever Krishna has been telling about how action should be performed. Right? Again, a disclaimer, none of this is new. We are repeating this over and over again because Krishna is repeating the whole concept of karma yoga from different angles. He spoke of it from the point of view of Astita Pragna. He spoke of it from the point of view of performing yagnas. He spoke of it from the point of view of doing one's duty, Swadharma. So now he is going to speak of the same karma yoga aspect with the emphasis of prayer or worship, right? As we are going to see. So we'll go to verse number 12 of chapter 4. As always, we'll listen to the shloka in the voice of Brother Sham. I'll give you a very brief meaning after that and then we'll discuss in detail what Krishna is conveying in this shloka. Kaankshantah karmanam siddhim Yajanta iha devatah Kshipram himanushe loke Siddhir bhavati karmaja Longing for the fruition of actions, they worship the gods here. For in the human world, success from action comes quickly. So Krishna had said that I respond the way I am approached. And this he said in response to, as we saw, the accusation that he is partial or not compassionate enough. When he can give the ultimate freedom, why doesn't he give that to everyone? Why does he hold back? I think it's necessary to understand how we have literally misunderstood the idea of compassion. And if God was to be compassionate in this manner, how he will actually be unjust. And also we must think a little deeper about the concept of prayer itself and how we can say that spiritual progress is in a sense a change in the nature of prayer itself or nature in the way we pray itself. First we'll talk about why Krishna says I am what you think I am or I give what you ask. That particular verse can be interpreted in all these ways. These are only different ways of putting the same thing. And the great uh, Annamaya, the saint Annamaya puts it in a statement which Swami has also very much quoted in many of his discourses. The way God is approached, that is what he appears to be. The, what we seek from him is what we get from him. When we were in school or when we were in college, I'm sure many of us would have come across some of our teachers who are very, very magnanimous when it comes to giving marks when they are correcting our answer sheets. 
people like me who are pretty much below average in studies would probably like these teachers because we end up getting good marks but if you look at it those who actually work really hard who studied diligently through the year who have you know done whatever has to be done as a student to perform their duty rightly they would probably not like such magnanimous scoring of marks it's not that these students didn't want others to get marks but when a teacher gives too much or much more than what a student deserves if you look at it hard work loses its value someone who says as i said has been very diligent in the course of the study was done whatever needs to be done as a student and then gets an o grade and let's say there's another person who's probably lazed around who's not done his uh, study through the year just before the exam is just crammed in something and let's say that person also ends up getting an o grade effort and skill loses its value in such a situation and people will be discouraged to work more sincerely isn't it but at the same time if the teacher is way too strict even then the students might get discouraged so a good teacher always strikes a balance where his or her compassion encourages the average student by giving the student confidence that they can also get good grades but at the same time it doesn't make the top graders feel unrewarded or make effort feel useless i think in many ways god is very much like that goodness effort sincerity righteousness have to be rewarded but at the same time the weak and the faltering also have to be given the confidence that they too can pick themselves up so in a sense i think god has created a system that caters to both these categories i should say that i'm just thinking aloud i might be wrong or my description or the explanation that i'm giving might be an oversimplification of the idea of how god has created this system but just as i said i'm thinking aloud and i'm just inviting all of you to think along with me unlike the example that i just gave the concept that we are talking about in the bhagavad gita is slightly different in fact it is slightly even paradoxical putting it all in concept krishna is speaking about the importance of karma right that is what he's been telling in the good part of the third chapter in the beginning of this chapter he's been telling that everybody has to perform karma nobody is exempted so he's talking about the importance of karma but is also telling arjuna that one must give up kartritva one must do what they are supposed to do but the ultimate idea is to give up doership itself so you're supposed to do but you're supposed to give up doership you're supposed to perform karma but you're not supposed to be the doer or the karta right you have to give up doership or kartritva and in all this prayer forms a link between this doing and giving up doership let me try to explain this it's a very very important theme much of what we wish to achieve in this world can be actually achieved through our own efforts right sami so would say that that god has given each one of us enough talent and ability to feed ourselves clothe ourselves and protect ourselves and those who belong to us right so that is the first driving force for actions itself why do we act because we believe that what i want or what i need i can achieve through my actions and we have all the time needs and desires and to fulfill them we have the requisite time and energy and so we work and try to achieve what we need and 
what we desire. So each one of us, it goes without saying, must be prepared to work and God gives us enough opportunities to see that our actions succeed. From the simplest to the most complicated, I work hard, I get good marks, I work hard in my business, I see good results, right? I'm trying to learn something, I'm trying to learn a new language. If I put my effort, I do see that there are results. Somebody might be able to do it easier than me, but nevertheless, there is always reward for hard work, right? That's why Swami would say it all starts with the will to do something, the will to achieve something, a little bit of confidence and some hard work. And then when good results start showing up, then we start growing in our confidence. We are now willing to put in a little more effort and then it becomes a cycle thereafter. But at the same time, life is also filled with uncertainties, right? At some point in this journey of we trying to put in effort and we having our confidence and we seeing our results showing up, we realize that there is a lot in life that is way beyond our efforts and way beyond us. The example that I generally like to give is that of health. There is so much that can go wrong in our body which we can do nothing about. There is nothing that I can do if one particular organ stops functioning, right? Yes, there are some medical procedures that can be done, but I'm telling about something which goes wrong within and probably we don't have any awareness about it till a certain point when it really becomes goes beyond our ability to control it, right? We have no way to stop this from happening even though it is happening within our body. Similarly, for us to achieve anything in life, we will see that there is so much that needs to fall in place which will lead to me achieving something and all of these things are not necessarily within my efforts. And I think when we start praying in situations like this, it is an acknowledgement of this fact that there is so much beyond me. Let's say I start a business and I do all the hard work, I do my market research, I look for the best raw materials, take all the necessary license from the government and you know employ the right kind of people. But still, I am not sure that my business will succeed. Because the fact is, much of the success that I see at the end of the day depends on factors that are beyond me. Similarly, the example that I always go back to, if I'm a farmer, I plow, I sow, I water, I put manure and fertilizer and whatever is there within my effort. I do everything that I'm supposed to do, but still if there is an untimely rain or a flood, I will not see the results of my actions. So when a businessman or when a farmer or a student prays after putting all the efforts that they are supposed to put in, it means that they acknowledge that they must act, first of all, but also acknowledge that the success they will see at the end of all of this effort is not necessarily completely a result of their actions alone. I hope you understand what I am saying. So there is an action, action gives results, but always life is filled with uncertainties and uncertainties that are beyond our control. And when this is a fact that there are uncertainties that are beyond our control, it means the success that we see at the end of the day definitely is partially because of chance, partially because of many things falling into place for which we have not done anything, right? And when we start praying, when we start bringing God into the equation, it is an acknowledgement that my success is not a result of my actions alone, right? 
But we don't stop putting in actions because we also see the value of putting in actions. As I said, we see that hard work does have a result, right? So we do have the value for hard work, but also have the acknowledgement that everything does not depend on my effort alone. But the problem is most of us get stuck in this particular zone. We have desires, we work towards them, we pray to God to fulfill them. When what we want doesn't happen, we pray harder, we work more. And in the case of some people who are morally compromised, they probably would not hesitate to manipulate the situation too. And why does all this happen? Because worldly success and gain is actually easy to get. If it was something which was way beyond us, I don't think we will try at all, right? Worldly success is always like something which is just out there and we always have this tendency to believe that I just need to try a little harder and I will get it, right? And that is what is being told in this particular verse. In this journey, sometimes, you know, we will come to the stage where we ask this question, why am I not getting what I seek? Why things don't go my way? Especially when we have put in all the best efforts, especially when we have been fair, we have not cheated anybody, I am working so hard, I am also praying, still things don't happen. At such a time, we might probably pause and ask this question, is there a bigger reason for this? Is there a bigger reason why I succeed? And is there a bigger reason why I fail sometimes? And this thought itself, which is actually a thought of self-inquiry, a thought of looking deeper, right? Asking some important spiritual questions. These questions will not come to us if we have not led a dharmic life. As I said, as long as we have that option of manipulating the situation, taking to immoral ways, it is not likely that we will ask these questions. I think we have spoken about this also in one of the episodes where when we have led a moral life, when you have tried all that we have to try and still things don't work out, it is at such a time that the buddhi or the discrimination begins to turn inward and ask these very, very important spiritual questions. We take to the path of inquiry only when we have led a dharmic life and the mind has been purified through that process, right? That's why Swami keeps on saying, and we've seen in the Bhagavad Gita also so many times, that one of the primary roles of karma is Chitta Shuddhi. When we perform our duties, it purifies the mind and leads us to a point where this buddhi will turn within and ask this question, why am I succeeding sometimes? Why am I failing sometimes? Is there a bigger reason for this? We will come back to this because this question is the connection that I was telling between action and going beyond action. But till that happens, till this question comes to our mind, Krishna says, as he says in the sloka, we will be happy pursuing worldly things because the worldly success and worldly desires that we look to fulfill seem to be just out of reach or just within reach rather. That little more effort and I will be able to get it. And that's why Krishna says, Kankshantaha karmanam siddhim. Kankshantaha means desiring karmanam siddhim. The fulfillment of actions. I want something, I have put in my karma and now I want to see success. So those that want to see their efforts succeed, Kankshantaha karmanam siddhim. Yajanta iha devataha. They worship gods and deities here. 
Yajanta means to worship. Actually, Yajanta also means to perform sacrifices, but I think the most perform yagnas. But here, the word Yajanta is rightly translated as they worship God or they try to please God's trying to fulfill certain desires. The word Iha, which is used here, actually means here, but this particular line can be explained in two ways. Yajanta Iha Devataha, which means worship is performed to deities in this world or we can see it as kankshantaha karmanam siddhim iha to see the fulfillment of one's worldly desires because the word iha also means worldly so when we add iha to kankshantaha karmanam siddhim iha it means that with the desire to fulfill worldly desires one turns to god and then he goes on to say, He, because Manushe Loke, in this human world, Siddhir Bhavati, success is attained, Karmaja, success of what kind? Success that can be got through one's actions, Karmaja, Chipram, which means quickly. So such success that can be attained through one's actions can be easily and quickly attained in this particular world. So people are more than happy to continue to pray for only that. We are happy to pray for those worldly desires which actually can be attained through our actions alone but we find that our actions are just falling short. So for such things we turn to God and as I said we get stuck in that level. But why does Krishna say Devataha? He says Yajante Iha Devataha Devataha means deities. Krishna doesn't say they worship Paramatma or the Supreme Lord. He says Devataha. When I decide what I want and I pray only for the fulfillment of that, I am actually not appealing to the Supreme Lord, but I am only appealing to a certain manifestation of that Supreme Lord's powers. When a farmer prays for rain, he prays to the God of rain to Indra. When a student prays for doing well in exams, he or she prays to Mother Saraswati, the goddess of knowledge. When a businessman wants profit, we say he prays to Mother Lakshmi, who is supposed to be the goddess of wealth. So we are very clear of what we want. So we pray very, very specifically only for that thing that we want. So such prayers are actually not addressed to the Supreme Lord, even if we are addressing to the Supreme Lord we are seeking the manifestation of a certain power of that Lord. So that becomes like prayers offered to the deities, right? And I think that's why Krishna says Devataha in this particular shloka. In fact, it's very interesting how we make such specific prayers. I believe somewhere in the city of Chennai, there is one Lord Ganesha temple and that Ganesha is very famously referred to as the Visa Ganesha because we all know that there are a lot of youngsters who after finishing their engineering and uh, other such degrees, they want to go abroad, they want to go to America for higher studies. And it's a lot of competition to get those US visas. So there is this particular Ganesha where people go there only praying that they should get their US visas approved. So he has become US visa Ganesha, right? This is how we really approach God, where we have decided what we need in life and we turn to God only to fulfill those things that we seek and nothing more, right? And that is why Krishna is saying, 
यजंत इह देवता दे वर्शिप स्पेसिफिक डेटीज फॉर स्पेसिफिक प्रेयर्स टू बी आंसर्ड द नेक्स्ट श्लोका सीम्स सम वॉट आउट ऑफ लाइन वेन वी लिसन टू इट एंड वेन आई गिव यू द मीनिंग यू विल फाइंड दैट इट्स सम वॉट सीम्स लाइक आउट ऑफ प्लेस वाइज कृष्ण स्पीकिंग अबाउट दिस ऑल ऑफ अ सडन बट वी विल सी दैट इट हैज अ वेरी वेरी डीप मीनिंग एंड ऑल्सो आफ्टर लिसनिंग टू द श्लोका वी विल कंटिन्यू विद वॉट आई वॉज टेलिंग अबाउट प्रेयर बींग दिस कनेक्शन बिटवीन कर्मा and going beyond karma we are not yet done with that right so we'll listen to the next shloka which is shloka number 13 i'll give you the brief meaning of that and then we will dwell deep into it because it's very very necessary at least for this shloka chatur varnyam maya srishtam guna karma vibhagashah tasya kartaram api maam The fourfold caste structure has been created by me, according to the division of their respective qualities and actions. Though I am the creator of this, know me as a changeless non-creator. All of a sudden, Krishna makes a mention of. the varna system or what is called the fourfold caste system chatur varnyam krishna says how does that fit into what krishna has been saying so far where does that caste system come into all this one of the understandings of the caste system i think i had explained a few episodes ago when we were talking about karma yoga i think towards the end of the third chapter this comes where i had mentioned that when we have the acceptance of god's wisdom of where we have been placed through birth and also acknowledge that karma yoga is not dependent on the nature of karma that we do we will see that there is no reason to change our profession change our family vocation and so on because we will not see one as being one particular profession as being higher than the other or one particular form of work as being more special and taking one closer to the goal but here we will take a slightly different approach which will put this shloka in the context of the previous two shlokas that we are going through and whatever concept that krishna is talking about now this concept of the varna system i think i had explained this particular interpretation of it in one of the answering booth shows also in the ancient bharatiya tradition the society was supposed to be divided into four main caste chaturvarnyam as krishna has just mentioned the lowest caste was supposed to be the shudras or the worker class then come the vaishyas they are supposed to be the business community higher than the shudras and the vaishyas are the kshatriyas the ruling class and the highest of the four are the brahmanas or the priestly and the learned class now this is a system that has understandably completely gone wrong and it has led to a lot of discrimination and we all know about all of that i think most of us have lived in a period or most of the elders would vouch for this fact that they've all lived in this period where they've seen this kind of discrimination based on caste but when krishna says here that i created these castes krishna is taking full credit for having created the system why does he say that he says in this particular shloka chaturvarnyam maya srishtam the fourfold caste system maya srishtam was created by me 
But what Krishna is referring to is not the mess of the caste system which has been created by us. He has created the caste system but the mess that the caste system has become, I think that is our doing, right? But he is referring to it in its original form and he clearly states that the system was created on the basis of not birth but of karma and guna. Chatur Varnyam Maya Srishtam Guna Karma Vibhagashaha Guna Karma Vibhagashaha means on the basis of guna and karma, one's nature and one's kind of actions they perform. Now what is the context in which the Krishna is making this particular statement, or this particular shloka, how does it come in here? Krishna said, I bless people based on what they seek. And most people are stuck in achieving things that they can achieve through their karma itself. So people based on their approach to karma can be divided into four categories. And these four categories reflect as four types of professions, the professions, some of which I just mentioned. Today we don't see that perfect correlation between the profession and the nature of karma, as Krishna just said. And that is the reason for this whole system breaking down and this whole system turning into an ugly discriminative system. But if we go back to the original source of it, which Krishna says, I have created this and I have created this for the benefit of the world. Let us start with the lowest class, the Sudras. Now these people are supposed to be those that perform manual labor. They are supposed to be the daily wage workers. What defines this category of people? They offer their work for the money that is paid to them. You pay them, they will work. You want them to come tomorrow and work again, you have to pay them again. right? Now I am not saying that all laborers are like this, that they only trade their effort and they work for money. But what Krishna refers to as Shudras are people who work in this manner. I hope I am making myself clear. I am not saying that all daily wage workers or all those people who do hard labor are Shudras. But all those who trade their work or trade their energy and effort only on the basis of money and give and take, they fall under this category called Shudras. So they are very, very particular that they will work only as much as they are paid, right? It's a clear barter system of how much you pay them, that much they will work. So in society, how does this particular nature express itself or in what profession does it express itself? Yes, as daily wage workers because they end up doing activity which the other people probably will not do for the sake of money. Since they are ready to trade their effort for money, a lot of other menial jobs which probably others will not do can be got done through these people because they are ready to do anything when they are given money. right? So this is the lowest category of people. It is not the category that, you know, what we see today as the lower class, the backward class or whatever, Dalits. So none of these names actually refer to what Krishna is saying as Shudras. Shudras are purely people who trade their karma for money, right? That's all is the best definition of the Shudras. Then come the second last or the Vaishyas. They are supposed to be the business class. Now, the business class are also money-minded. There's no doubt about that, right? But they know the art of investing. They don't look at 
direct monetization of each and every effort of theirs. A businessman will be ready to put in effort without any reward for a period of time, knowing that there are going to be returns later, right? And that is what differentiates the nature of a Vaishya from the nature of a Shudra, right? So this kind of work, first of all, calls for a little more intelligence and a little more thinking, and it does call for a little bit of sacrifice, right? Swami says one of the forms of sacrifice is you give up something to gain something, right? Even when you go to a shop, you do a, a monetary transaction. Swami says that is also a form of sacrifice. You give up what you have to gain something, right? So a businessman is somebody who knows the art of investing, who knows the art of holding back sometimes and sacrificing sometimes for a greater gain later. So this kind of work, as I said, calls for a little bit of intelligence and a little bit of sacrifice too. So the nature is, they also want material benefits, but they are wise enough to know that to gain more, you should be ready to give up little. So this nature defines the second last category or the Vaishyas. Then comes the Kshatriyas. Now the Kshatriyas are those who are supposed to rule and protect the society. For this class, the most important thing in their life is honour and respect. And that is why they end up being the warrior class. For honour or to protect the country, they will be ready to sacrifice anything including their life. Right. So that nature defines this class. They also work for money, there's no doubt about that. But more than money, they value respect and honour in life. So the nature to sacrifice in this category of people will be much, much more. So the desire to protect others over oneself will be one of the defining features of those people who fall under this category of Kshatriyas. So they will offer themselves first whenever there's a danger to society. And that is why they are best suited to be the protectors and rulers of the society. right? And that is why the Kshatriyas eventually become the kings and the warriors who protect. right? The final category the final class, which is supposed to be the best class, is that of the Brahmins. As Swami would say, a Brahmin is not defined by being a priest, is not defined by being born in a Brahmin family, is not defined by wearing the sacred thread. A Brahmin is one who is preoccupied with Brahman. Only such a person can be defined as a Brahmin. The one whose goal is Brahman, who is constantly seeking Brahman, they are not interested in money, they are not interested in property, they are not even interested in name and honour. Their only focus is the ultimate goal of Brahman. So they do not try to monetize their action like the other categories. Nor do they act to be respected or revered. So the moment I say this, you can understand how the system is broken down. I mean, those who are born Brahmins who have gone into business those who are born into probably the lower classes and now raise themselves to the level of, you know, we have so many saints in India. One of the saints I can think of right away is a saint in Maharashtra called Chokha Mela, right? He's supposed to have been born in a so-called Sudra family, but he raises himself to the level of a saint because he became a Brahmin because he pursued Brahman one-pointedly, right? So the best definition of a Brahmin is not He's a priest or he's a teacher or he's this or he's that. One who pursues the ultimate goal in life, right? 
So such a person, when this nature translates into society in work, they work towards release from karma. They do not try to monetize their karma. They perform karma only to be released from karma. So not that the Brahmins don't need food and place to stay and to be protected. But what they do will never be for any of these things. A Kshatriya acts for honor. A Vaishya acts for a larger benefit in mind, a larger wealth in mind. A Shudra acts for sustenance. But a Brahmin is one who acts to be released from action itself. Right? So, in other words, a Karma Yogi is only the person who can be called a Brahmin. Right? And that is why if you see, when you look at it as what is the profession as such, the Brahmins take up when it comes to the society. They take up the preservation of knowledge and the sharing of knowledge. They become teachers, they become physicians, they become priests, right? So whatever requires that kind of sacred nature which should not be connected with money, all of those professions go to these class, right? So it has got nothing to do with profession really, but it all has to do with the kind of karma that they perform and the kind of attitude with which the karma is performed. And that's why Krishna says, karma and guna define the varnas. The four varnas are defined by the actions, the way they are performed and the nature or the gunas. So Krishna clearly says, I created these categories. In other words, all these kinds of people come from him and approach him. Right? As he had told in the 11th verse, that we had gone through last week, Mama Vartaman Anuvartante Manushyaha Partha Sarvasha. All kinds of people following all kinds of paths come to me eventually. So, if Krishna were to give the same to all, he will be diluting this difference, right? Going back to what Arjuna was saying, that why can't you give the ultimate to everybody? If Krishna were to give that ultimate to everybody, as just like how an indiscriminately magnanimous teacher pouring marks is going to blur the distinction between a very good student, a hard-working student and a lazy student. Similarly, if Krishna were to give the same blessing to all, he will actually be diluting the difference what we just went through as the difference between the four classes. Right? Discriminating and treating badly based on the abilities is completely wrong. Right? A teacher who is being partial towards a student that, that is really good. That's a different thing and that is wrong. But at the same time, one must lift oneself through effort and wisdom and that must be encouraged, right? So each of these types of people turn to God. The Shudras for sustenance, the Vaishyas for more wealth and prosperity, the Kshatriyas for name, fame and honor and the Brahmins for liberation. And Krishna says, Ye yathamam prapadhyante tan tatha eva bhajam yaham. I reward people just as they seek from me and by doing that, what does Krishna do? He ensures that these four categories are maintained in that same manner because the way you approach, if I'm going to give you, I clearly am making this distinction and in that manner, Krishna says, I have created these Varnas. But we must remember that the flaws in the system cannot be attributed to God. God might have created the caste system in this manner that I just explained, but we have created the caste discrimination. God created two genders, but we created gender biases. It was not God who did it. God created rich and poor, but we have created divide between rich and poor. 
So the flaws in the system cannot be attributed to God. Because Krishna says, I am available and you are free to ask what you want and I will respond as per your prayer. But then you cannot attribute the problems that come from that to me. That is why in the next line Krishna says, Tasya kartaram apimam. Even though I am the creator of this, kartaram mam means I am the creator. Vidhi, know that. Akartaram, non-doer, avyayam, immutable. Which means, Tasya kartaram apimam vidhi akartaram avyayam. Though this was created by me, know me as the non-doer who is changeless. This particular word, avyayam, I think we had defined it when we were going through the second chapter itself. And how it is related to being a doer or not being a non-doer. The word avyayam means that which is changeless, that does not need to do anything to change. And as it is being said here, akartaram avyayam, that is why he is saying akartaram avyayam means one who is changeless can never be the doer. If I do not want to progress, if there is nothing for me to change, there is nothing for me to attain, I will never be a doer, right? If I put my hand in the fire, I think this was another example that I had given, I might say that the fire has burnt me, but actually the fire has not burnt me. I have put my hand in the fire. The fire has continued to be itself, right? And I think that is what Krishna is referring here. You cannot attribute the flaws in the system to him because he is not the doer in that sense. He is just like fire, he is there, his nature is to bless and give whatever is being sought. And because he blesses based on the prayer, this division between these four categories is maintained. Yes, in that manner he is the creator of these four categories, but you cannot blame him for distinction. In that manner he is not the doer, right? And that is why he says, Tasya kartaram apimam vidhi Akartaram avyayam. Though I am the creator of this, though I am the person who is the source of this, I am not the doer. Right? We have to still discuss what does prayer have to do with all of this, how prayer connects action and becoming actionless. I think we will go through that in the last part. Before that, probably we'll listen to the next verse, which is actually an extension of what Krishna has been telling here. We'll discuss that. And then we will come to that part of where does prayer fit into all of this. So we listen to the verse number 14 of the 4th chapter. Namam karmani limpanti Name karma phale spriha Itimam yo bhijanati Karma bhirna sabadhyate Actions do not taint me. For me, there is no hankering for the results of actions. One who knows me thus does not become bound by actions. Because the Lord is perfect, because He is unchanging and because He is eternal, there is no craving for anything at all. This, as we have seen, is true even for a jnani, right? If a jnani can become a non-doer through jnana, that is the description which Krishna gave when he spoke about this Tita Pragna. He becomes a non-doer because there is nothing for him to attain. He is complete in himself. He is immersed in himself. He finds all joy and happiness by going within. He does not have anything to gain from the world. So such a person, even if he acts, he does not become the doer. 
right? If that is the case of a person who attains jnana and becomes a non-doer, how can the Lord who is knowledge itself be a doer? And that's what Krishna reiterates here. Namam karmani limpanti. Limpanti means to stain. Karmani, actions, na limpanti, do not stain. Name karma phale spruha. I do not have the craving for karma phala. Iti maam yaha abhijanati. Whoever knows me or understands me as such, as the non-doer, kartaram apimam akartaram avyayam, as the creator of all this, but still not the doer, what happens to such a person who understands me as this? Itimam yah abhijanati. Whoever understands me in this manner, karma bihi nasa bhadhyate. They are no more bound by actions. Karma bihi nasa bhadhyate. Now, what did we start with? We saw how Krishna is trying to speak about the importance of karma. At the same time, he was telling Arjuna to be a non doer. And here Krishna is explaining how he is the doer, yet the non-doer. And he is also saying, those who know me as this, which means those who learn this, they will be free from the bounds of karma. And how does Krishna be the non-doer in spite of acting? He says he is just being himself. There is no favoritism in his actions. The actions are not dictated by his likes and dislikes. And since there is no likes and dislikes, there is no question of desiring for the results at all. So that is the clue that Krishna is giving. Now, how is all of this connected to prayer? Going back to what we started with, we all have some desires and the means to achieve them is through our actions. When we pray, as I said, it is an acknowledgement that there are factors that are beyond my control. And when we finally become successful in our endeavor, we also know that it was not only through our efforts that we attained the success. Eventually, when we go through life in this manner, we will learn that what we must do is, as the famous adage goes, we must do our best and leave the rest to God. Right? But we still have desires. We still have our idea of what is good for us and what we want. Sometimes we get it. Sometimes we don't. Eventually, when we go through this up and down over and over again, that success and failure, as I said, for a brief moment, we'll be caught up in that cycle. When success eludes us, we will work harder, we will pray harder. But at some point, we will find that there is something which is beyond us and how much ever we pray, however hard we work, sometimes things don't happen the way we want it. So eventually, we will start wondering, why is it that our prayers don't get answered all the time? And I think slowly this understanding comes that maybe there is a reason why things happen the way they happen. And slowly we will turn to accepting things as they are because of this understanding that God is perfect, God does not have any favoritism and God is all the time doing what is right for each one of us. If I have to put this whole thing in one sentence, when we begin to pray, we are acknowledging God's omnipotence, when we begin to surrender, we acknowledge God's omniscience. I'll repeat it again. When we begin to pray, we are acknowledging God's omnipotence. How is that? Because we believe that what I want to achieve, God can make it happen. I'm 
I'm dying of a incurable disease. I pray because I believe in God's omnipotence. There is nothing that God cannot do. So when we pray, we are acknowledging that here is this all this mighty force, all powerful God who can make anything happen. So whenever we pray, it is actually an acknowledgement of God's omnipotence. But when we begin to surrender, when we say that, Swami, I think you know better than me. I would want this to happen, but I think you know better than me. We are now beginning to acknowledge God's omniscience or the fact that He knows best. So He is all-knowing and certainly He knows what is best for each one of us far better than we ourselves know. So the need to ask, the need to change things in our life begins to go out of the picture. right? In other words, as we have been talking over and over again, it leads us to a state where we start completely giving up our raga and dvesha. We just become patient witnesses to our own lives. We just say that, okay, this is what happens. Maybe there is a reason for this. And we begin to acknowledge God's role in all of this. And I think that is why Krishna keeps repeating in the verse that we went through today and in the verse that we went through, I think last week or the week before that, where he says that those who understand me this way, they will reach me, right? Why is that understanding God's nature so very important? And this turning towards this question of why are things happening the way they are happening, you know, this will not happen unless the mind itself gets purified through performing good karma, through performing our duties. So then what happens to our actions? Let us say that I've come to the state where I say there's nothing for me to ask, Swami will do whatever has to be done. So I don't have to tell him that do it this way or let me you know, get this or let me become rich. There's nothing to ask. Then what happens to our actions? As I said, we perform actions because there are desires and needs to fulfill and actions is a means to that. Now when we acknowledge that everything is happening because of God's love and will, what happens to our actions? When I start praying and when I say that I will do my best and I leave the rest to Swami, then doing my best effort has already started becoming a means by which I worship, right? Instead of that being my effort, my action has already started becoming a part of my prayer. I go in front of Swami and pray and I know that my prayer will not be complete if I have not put my own efforts, right? So in that sense, my efforts have already started becoming a part of my prayer. And when I come to this understanding that everything happens because of His will, all of my efforts, I will start looking at it only as a form of prayer. Right? My work will completely transform into worship. And that is what Krishna said in the second chapter by saying that actions that are performed as worship, actions that are performed as a yagna, they will not bind. And that is how prayer or devotion to God and the knowledge of God's nature becomes a connection between karma and naishkarmya or actions and non-doership. Right? We begin with action. As Krishna has been telling, actions are important. You cannot give them up. As long as we have desires and needs, the action becomes a means by which we reach these desires or fulfill these desires that we have. And then slowly this idea of prayer comes into picture where we start acknowledging that everything is not attained only by action. 
we start giving lesser and lesser importance to the actions that we perform. And in the process, what happens, the action does not cease to remain as action, but it starts becoming a form of worship. Work itself becomes a form of worship. And when we come to a point where we are in the state of complete surrender and say that everything happens only because of the will of God, now whatever actions I do, it becomes an expression of my devotion to God. It becomes purely only a form of worship and nothing more. And when all actions, I am a son to somebody, I am a husband to somebody, I am a wife to somebody, I am somebody's mother, I am playing this role in the organization, I am working in this corporate, whatever be the action that is being performed, all of that now will not be performed for self-improvement, will not be performed for gaining something, will only be performed as a part of an expression of our devotion to God as part of our worship. And when action becomes nothing more than an action which is performed as part of a yajna, as part of a worship, Krishna says that action will not bind. And that is what Krishna had said in this particular verse. That those who understand me, those who understand me will not be bound by action. I think that is the meaning of that. Because when you understand God, you start acknowledging that he knows best what he is doing, right? Whatever I've said, I think I don't stop. I'll keep repeating this over and over again. But I hope the concept is understood. And that is why it is very, very important. And it's kind of cryptic. When you first read it, it suddenly you wonder where does the caste system come into all this? And where does this idea that Krishna says, if you know the avatar, then you'll reach God. But it is all so beautifully interlinked and that is why Swami would often say that Swami's message is such that you can start from anywhere and you can focus on that. And if you're diligent enough and if you're sincere enough, you will reach the goal. And that's precisely what Krishna said last week too. Whatever be the path, you take the path of devotion, you take the path of inquiry, you take the path of seva, you take the path of namasmarana. If you're diligent and sincere enough, that itself will lead you to God. There is nothing more that one needs to do. So with that, dear listeners, I will conclude this week's episode. I'll join you all again next week in continuing the verses of the fourth chapter. I most humbly offer this effort at Swami's lotus feet and I thank each one of you for joining me week after week. And I know that we are progressing very, very slowly. We have a lot of shlokas to cover. But I hope uh, there is nothing to achieve by running through this whole thing. Let us just go through this verse as a process by which we keep reiterating to ourselves over and over again take it as a process of mananam where we keep repeating to ourselves what is the way in which life has to be led so that it eventually leads us to Swami. So with that prayer, I thank you all for joining me. Do join me again next week for the resumption of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. Till I meet you all next week, take care. Jai Sairam.